the light has come. But the question is, has the light of Christ illuminated your life? Has it transformed you? This morning we continue our series, the year-long series we've begun, called The Life of Jesus. Let me see, you have your books? Have you been reading them? Five bucks today only. <laughs> get a book. Husbands, get your own book and read it. Get in a group where you, where you discuss and let the Word of God fill your life. I promise you it will reap great benefits, but you have to put some effort forward and bring a friend along. Someone that's asking questions, someone whose life hasn't been very consistent on a path toward the Lord, hook arms in this person. Bring them along with you. The Christmas portion of this series, I'm calling Christmas Relics, and it deals with readings 1 through 19 in the book, first 19 readings, and it focuses on the inanimate objects that are found in the story of Jesus' birth. Now you say, why would you focus on those kinds of things? The, the uh, incarnate items, the tangible items that are included in the story. Because you have to understand the doctrine of inspiration. We believe that everything in the Bible, but everything as I'm focusing here in the narratives of Jesus' life was divinely inspired. Which means it was deliberately included by the Holy Spirit. Now I'll give you the theological words again. We believe in verbal inspiration. First we believe in plenary inspiration. P-L-E-N-A-R-Y. Which means that the whole of the scripture is inspired. But we also believe in verbal inspiration. Which means down to the very words that were written. Now that's talking about written in the original languages which were what? Greek and Hebrew, not English. But even down to the very words. So the things that are included are deliberate. And the things that are omitted are deliberate by the Holy Spirit as he spoke in and through the men who recorded the story of Jesus' life. You can read 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Peter 1, chapter 1, 20 and 21. Today's message is a star and treasures. And the focus of the message is on the wise men who gave gifts to Jesus. Are you familiar with the wise men? Who knows everything about the wise men? Do you know everything about the wise men? Not quite. Three kings from the east came wearing crowns and riding camels, and they brought three gifts to Jesus and presented them to him in the stable. Is that right? How much of it's wrong? All of it's wrong. All of it's wrong. That image is formed from Christmas cards, plays, and carols. There were three gifts, not necessarily three givers or three men. There were at least two because it's a plural word. 
They were not kings. They were scholars, perhaps more like priests. And they, if they were riding anything, it may have actually been Arabian horses, not camels, that are mentioned nowhere. So how many of you have a nativity, or as we call it, a manger scene displayed in your house? Do you have a sawzall? <laughs> or, or, or you could use some sharp scissors, hedge clippers. Go in and cut the legs off the camel. And they'll look more like horses. Also, you don't put them right, right by the stable, remember, which could not have been made of wood. You put them across the room. But I point all this out for this reason. We want to be very sure that what we believe about Christmas but also about Christianity comes from the Bible. Not from the culture, not from tradition, not from secondhand knowledge, and certainly not for our own opinions and ideas. What's true from God must come from God. And his vehicle of revelation is the scripture. That's our source. So let's see what the Bible says about the birth of the Messiah. Take out your outline. First, the incarnation was intended for all. Incarnation means the act of becoming flesh or being made flesh. Now we're at Matthew chapter 2 on page 21 in your book. My book is spiral bound and bigger so it won't tear up. But, and maybe because I need it to be bigger. But... <laughs> But turn there and follow along with me this morning. We're in reading number 15, right at the top. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men. Now, the Greek here is magi, not wise men. That's the literal word, magi. Well, it sounds like magician, exactly. That's where we get our word from. So, Wise men from the east arrived unexpectedly in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, who were these men? These magi were learned scholars. They were teachers, mathematicians, philosophers who combined both science and sorcery. They were advisors to kings. They interpreted dreams. They divined wisdom through occult magic. But they also decided questions of medicine and law. Now their origin, the east. It could signify Asia, Arabia, India, or even China. But it's more likely, based on historical writings, that they came from the land of the Medes and Persians, which is modern day what? Yeah, Iran, Iran, you say it here. <laughs> because, see, Iran is not Arab. It's Persian. Did you know that? Different. So they either came from Persians, Iran, 
or Babylon, which would be modern-day Iraq, Iraq. But the Bible provides little specific information about these wise men. I wonder why. Remember a few minutes ago I said, what's included is deliberate. What's left out is deliberate. So we have to try to discover the whys. What's the motivation? I think, so whose opinion is this? Are you duty bound to my opinion? No, but you need to consider it and study it out and pray it through. Think it through carefully. I think it indicates that the Spirit's emphasis, who was speaking through Matthew, the writer of this gospel, was not the specific identity of the Magi. Rather, it's the fact that these Magi, who were Gentiles, highly educated, much respected, sought the Messiah. Now look at the contrast. Were shepherds highly educated or much respected? And they were Jewish. These are Gentiles, highly educated. And what, what is being shown here is that the Christ child came for the whole spectrum. But not just Jews. Well, how did these Gentiles... From a distant land, and Gentile really just means non-Jew. Every nationality, ethnicity other than Jewish fits the category Gentile. How did they know about this expected king of the Jews? Well, you have to again go back into history. Daniel and a a number of gifted young Israelis, Israelites, were kidnapped by what king? Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And they were taken away to Babylon. Now if you've read Daniel or you're familiar with Daniel. He was a young man and his friends were Shadrach, Meshach and Tebedwego. You know them. They were thrown in the lion's den. But they were, they were young men of great conviction. When you live with conviction especially standing apart from cultural pressure, you will have influence. And I expect that these young men and these other Jews who were captives in Babylon told about the one true God and the Messiah King who would come six centuries later. These wise men may have even been aware because of information from these Jews about a prophecy that's found in Numbers 24. It appears on the screen since you don't have an Old Testament in the the book that you've bought. I see him, but not in the present time. I perceive him, but far in the distant future. A star will rise from Jacob. A scepter signifying rule will emerge from Israel. So it may have been that very prophecy that tipped these Gentiles off. And they were looking for it. The Magi saw 
the heavenly sign that they identified as a star. And they traveled at least 800 miles. But depending on where the east signifies, it could have been two or three times that much. To see the newborn king. But the point here as I begin is that the Messiah came for you. Doesn't matter your background. Doesn't matter your race, your ethnicity, your educational or social standing. Man looks on outward appearance, color, financial status, all these things. God looks on the heart. So if Christ came for you, do you know that? Do you know who knows Christ came for, for you? I want to see some hands. You know that. So now the question is, have you responded? Have you responded? The star, we begin with the star, demonstrated attention from God. And first, God provided direction for these seekers. Again, on verse, verse 2, this latter half. For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say they followed the star. It says they saw the star. And they set out to find him so they could worship him. Well, why would they have come to Jerusalem? Why? Not for prophecy. Why Jerusalem? It says Israel, but why that? That's a city. Jerusalem's a city. Why would they have come to that city? If you want to see Nikki Haley, where do you go? You go to Columbia. Now, you're not going to see her, but the star appeared. So, looking for a king, they went to the center of power. The center of not only religious, but governmental power was Jerusalem in Israel. So, it was the most obvious place to find a successor to the throne. See, some of the scripture is just common sense, isn't it? But back up from it and say, now what does this say? Once they arrived, what'd they do? They started saying, where is he? And they just asked everybody on the streets and anybody they could get a hold of, where is he? Where's this newborn king? We've come to worship him. We saw his star and here we are. Because they thought that something of such significance, a person being born of such importance, would be known by everyone. And they would all have delighted over it. What was this star? It appeared, so it couldn't have been there all along. Well, scholars differ. Some say that it was the alignment of two planets, kind of two planets overlapping in their circuits. 
possibly Jupiter and Saturn, just based on the dates and all. Others suggest it was a supernova, which is a faint star that explodes brilliantly and, and it, it, it gives off enormous light for weeks or months. Some others say, no, it's more likely a comet that passed nearby. Most likely Halley's Comet. You know which of those I think? None of them. Because I don't think it's necessary to discover a natural explanation for a supernatural occurrence. Here's what we see. God created a sign that these particular men would recognize to alert them to Jesus' birth. They were astronomers. They were astrologers, which the two weren't, they were meshed together in those days. Science and superstition weren't as distinct as we would consider them today. But these were men who constantly searched the heavens, trying to decipher wisdom and direction to foretell the future. So they would notice when something new appeared in the sky. So God sent a sign. An appropriate sign. A star. To men who studied the heavens. What it shows. What does it show? He knew who he was dealing with. He was sensitive. He was attentive to the recipients of the sign. He understood the men he wanted to reach. God knows you. God knows you intimately. And he knows how to communicate with you individually and appropriately to call you to his son, our Savior, by providing direction that you will receive. What direction did God give you? For some, it may be the Bible. You're flipping through it and God's, it came alive. And God spoke. It may have been a Sunday message. Like, like today. But, but what's it, what happens here that can change your life. Is not what Perry says. It's what the Spirit of God reveals and shows you. That's the transformative activity. That often happens. It could be a conversation in a small group, a sequence of events, or the influence of a friend. But how did God direct you to his son? Do you know? Because we all came differently. Well, I grew up in the church. I know, but when did you experience the son? See, they're not the same, are they? Verse 3. 
When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. That's curious, isn't it? See, what these wise men were asking would have upset, even enraged Herod because he was the king. He was crowned by Caesar Augustus as a favor to Herod's father. And Herod was threatened, enraged, disturbed, angered, frustrated by the suggestion that a Jewish king had been born. Remember, the Jews didn't accept Herod. He wasn't Jewish. He was Idumean, a descendant of of Esau. There may be another aspect of this. Because of this long journey, these wise men would not have traveled alone. They would have been accompanied by a large caravan just for supplies. But perhaps a small army. Because they traveled through hostile Roman lands, through barren areas where robbers were. So they probably didn't look very innocent. They rather appeared probably pretty menacing coming into town unannounced. So the king and the citizens may have feared that a deadly conflict with much bloodshed was about to occur between these wise men... And the Romans, because the wise men, it sounded like, may want to throw Herod off the throne and replace him with this newborn king. Herod was a vicious, cruel man. The Romans crucified thousands. And one particular offense that was often crucified by the Romans was insurrection. If anyone opposed Roman rule, they were summarily crucified. But Herod was a a paranoid person as well. And he killed many different people he suspected as being rivals for his throne, including his wife, his brother-in-law, who had been inappropriately named a, a priest, and three of his own sons. You can look at the notes on page 22. And I urge you, if you haven't bought your book, buy a book and read these notes. Now, the notes aren't inspired, but they're written excellently. And they provide some good background and insight for you. And it has some good information about Herod being so disturbed. Because he hadn't been born the king of the Jews. He obtained his rank through political intrigue. And he thought this was, there was a serious competitor in this newborn king. And then it just talks about how the citizens knew how vicious and bloodthirsty Herod was. So, so read it. As you, as you read the passages, read the notes as well. Herod was concerned. He was traumatized. So he decided to discover what the Jewish religious leaders might know about this Messiah. So at verse 4. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, 
Because this is what was written through the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. Because out of you will come a leader, a ruler, who will shepherd my people Israel. Now this prophecy comes from the last book written before God was silent for 400 years. You know what that book was? Micah. Micah 5.2. And it was written obviously 400 years before. But you know what's interesting here? The religious leaders knew exactly where the Messiah would be born, didn't they? No hesitation, no confusion. Confusion. But apparently, they were not interested enough to walk the six miles to Bethlehem to investigate it for themselves. Some of us are like that. Some of us grow up around information about Christ. Perhaps you went to church. You know, like me, I went to church. My mother took me to church. There was no question about it. You were going to church. We were worse than the whale. mailman. Didn't matter. Sun, rain, snow. Get in the car. So I was immersed in it. I knew all about it. But I didn't know the Savior personally. I knew all the facts. I knew all the verses. I could memorize them. I'd been immersed in the Christian culture. And I was not born again. These men, they knew where to find the Messiah. They didn't even care enough to go and see for themselves. Have you checked it out for yourself? Not your parents. Not your grandparents. You. Individually. Personally. Then Herod devised a devious plan in his mind. And then sent for the wise men. Which show us that God provided difficulties for growth. Verse 7. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men. I wonder why it was a secret. Again, there's a, there's a loud word. In, he was the king. Why did he, have a, why did he do it secretly? Was it so no one else would clue them in on who he was? Perhaps. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and learned from them the time when the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. Herod pretended to have an interest in honoring the Messiah. And he told the wise men to go and find him and then come back and tell me because I want to worship him as well. But did the wise men know where he was? Did they? No. They don't know where he is. They saw a star. They showed up in the capital. And Herod's saying, go find him. They don't know how to find him. They are stuck. They are stalled out. These men who have come 800 to 2,000 miles to find this Messiah are lost. They've endured frustration, hardships, delays, bad weather, difficulties, danger as they cross wilderness, desert, 
and hostile lands. They expended great effort and many resources and spent a long time in this quest and they are stopped dead still. Finding the Savior isn't always easy. You know, it includes some things. You know, I think, I think there's a soft conversion where you just sort of accept facts. Nothing much happens. I'm not sure salvation ever happens that way. What about you? Now, we all want to go to heaven, so we all want to pass, you know, from this life into the next one. I don't think that's salvation. Salvation is regeneration. It's transformation. Christ becomes Lord. He takes over. You become transformed. And I think that finding the Savior requires some acknowledgement of personal insufficiency. See, if I'm going to follow him instead of me, I've got to know that I'm a fool to follow me. And it requires some awareness of sin. Why do I need a Savior if I'm really a pretty good guy? You want to pass into heaven, but you don't have any awareness of need. I don't think you're saved without knowing your need. And guilt. And regret. And remorse. Do you remember the day when that stuff flooded you? I thought I was a good guy. I went to church. I knew all the verses. I knew about Christ. I knew my theology was good. I had perfect grades. I had a full scholarship to law school. Man, I was riding on top of the planet. And God showed me myself. Do you remember that day? God showed me myself. And I pled for him to take my life. I saw my need of direction. I had enough pride and arrogance and steam to last the rest of my days, I thought. And I'd get into heaven too. I don't think we get into heaven unless we know our need. Because why would we follow and worship a Savior if we don't really need one? So where are you? You might be stalled out. You might say, well, I've tried. I mean, you know, I'm encountering this discouragement and confusion and there are obstacles and setbacks. You know, a lot of times we're our own obstacle, our own pride, because only one can rule. Either you'll rule or Christ will rule. These wise men had a rough time finding the Savior. And I don't think it comes easily for hardly anyone. God, though, provided deliverance in their need. Verse 9. After hearing the king, they went on their way. Remember, he's told them where to go, right? Because he heard it from the priest. So he said, go to Bethlehem and find him. Okay, here's the deal. 
Some strange guys show up in town. They're not even Jewish. And they want to see your newborn child. Well, isn't that what happened? You don't know these guys. You don't know. They might be... They might. They might offer human sacrifices. They might want to kidnap this child. You don't know what they do. I mean, lots of religions offered human sacrifices. So how are they going to find one child in a city of perhaps a thousand? Not a huge city. But how about knocking on some doors and let me see that kid. That's what really happened, you see. Boy, we romanticize this whole story, don't we? So they went on their way, and there it was. See, they're going down the path. The king says, I want you to find him. They're saying, uh, we don't know how to find him. What are we going to do? There it was. The star they'd seen in the east. It led them until it came and stopped above the place Where the child was. But look at this. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed beyond measure. Why? If they've been following a star everywhere. They didn't know how to find the child and the king's on them. You see it? You feel it? These wise men were in need. And God delivered... By sending the star that led them to the exact place where the child was in Bethlehem. We don't know if when the star appeared, was it when they reached the outskirts? Did it lead the whole way? We don't know. But they they said it's the star they saw before. Could this be the star they saw before? Could it? How many times has a star stopped over your house? See, it's just common sense. No. I mean, how does a star stop over a house? That doesn't make any sense. So, it was some kind of shining phenomenon. If you see a star over your, a flaming light over your house, call the fire engine. Some kind of shining phenomenon sent specifically to the Magi. Perhaps... Even an angel. Here's the point. When you pursue God's plan and His purpose, He will supply what you need. But you know, a lot of us won't want to just sit and have God give us everything we need and want, don't we? Well, God hasn't given me what I need. You hadn't made a movement. See, notice this. The wise men were provided the star when they had to have it. They had to be moving. They were going in the direction. So some of you are are lacking something in your life. And I'm going to ask, are you moving or are you just mad? I'm not getting what I want. God didn't give me what I want. I don't even know if there is a God. He's not delivering me. Are you moving? Take what you know and follow the wisdom you have. Pray in every way 
God, you got to show up because I'm about to run out of my own thinking. Is your pursuit of Christ stalled out? Look for God's star. Might be a prayer where you actually hear God. But you know what you say, I can't hear God. It takes practice. It takes clearing some other stuff out of the way. Doesn't happen every time. Might be through a prayer. Could be a passage in the Bible that just, just comes alive for you. And you know it's not just you reading. It's God speaking. You know what I'm talking about? Could be a person that God sends to you. A person who can point out the way for you. If you're willing to listen. And humble enough to seek some help. And so in verse 11 it says they entered the house. I don't see a stable in there. Do you? Maybe it's a misprint. And they saw the child and with Mary his mother. And fallen to their knees. They worshipped him. Well, where's this house? Well, it could be the same house where he was born. Because remember, the census is over. The guests have gone. But they're remaining. Because if you'll keep reading this passage, you'll see that they had to go to Jerusalem. Because they, they before the wise men came to it, so it's before here. They, Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. 33 days later, the parents and Jesus went to the temple where they had to offer a sacrifice for Mary's purification after the passage of blood. So they needed to go to Jerusalem. So it's not likely they would have gone back to Nazareth, 70 miles away, when Jerusalem is six miles away. So they stayed until after that. Now, did they go to Nazareth? I don't know. I mean, Luke says they would then went to Nazareth. So there's some confusion whether they were in Nazareth or in Bethlehem when the wise men arrived. But anyway, the wise men arrived. But when? Well, it was at least after 41 days. We know they were in Bethlehem. But it could have been up to two years. And the reason that I say two years is because page 23 under reading 17. Herod asked the wise men, when did they see the star? And then he killed every male child two years old and under. So either the star appeared two years earlier... Or perhaps it was a year earlier and he wanted a margin for error. But there was some number of months up to two years that it took for the wise men to arrive. That's why we put the wise men across the room. Now the treasures displayed awareness of Jesus. Verse 11. Entering the house they saw Mary but then the latter part of 11. Then they opened their treasures... And presented him with gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, how'd they know who this kid was? Ordinary looking child. Poor parents. Rooming with some other relatives. How do they know to bow down and give this kid priceless treasure? Same way that you recognize Jesus. Same way that you know his word is true by revelation. Now there's meaning to these gifts. We don't know whether the wise men knew all these 
the purposes of these gifts. We understand some purposes, but perhaps that God provoked these wise men to give the gifts for our understanding. But they revealed respect. They revealed adoration, but they were appropriate. The gold signified Jesus' royalty. Gold was an appropriate gift for, for a Messiah king because that was the medal of royalty. And kings often had, had jewelry and ornaments and even dining instruments made of gold. It was so precious and expensive and valuable. So this gift of gold to a peasant child acknowledged that his identity was that he had the right to rule as king. But this gold also likely supported this family when they went on the run, escaping Herod, running for their lives. Because a craftsman can't just set up shop and make a living here and then there and then the other place. It takes a while to get some clients. So here was some resources to live on. Would you have given him, king, given him gold? Is Jesus your king? Because if, he, if you say he is king, that means he has the right to rule over your life. Have you determined to obey Jesus as king over your life? That's how you give him that gift. Frankincense symbolizes Jesus' divinity. Frankincense was a, a hardened resin gum, a strong fragrance. Uh, it was rare and expensive. But, you know, not a lot of people have frankincense now. It's, it's what is that stuff called? Essential oils. Don't you do not tell my wife this. She has, I mean, she lathers up in all that stuff. All those little bottles, I mean, it's. I'm gonna tell you what, I went to kiss her on the neck one night after she'd slabbed all that stuff on. I'm <laughs> frankincense tastes awful. But anyway, it had importance. It was mixed with other specific spices. Exodus 30 tells you about it. And it was burned on the altar of incense in the temple continuously, nonstop, all the time. And the smoke that rose from the altar of incense represented the prayers of God's people rising to heaven. But the gift, you see, because it was used in temple worship, symbolized that Jesus was divine. Wasn't just a, a child, a human child. He was worthy of worship. Would you give him the gift of frankincense? Which means, do you dedicate yourself to worshiping Jesus with your whole life? Myrrh suggests Jesus' death. Myrrh was an, an aromatic gum from a thorn bush. And um, it was ground up and it was placed on linen strips. And it was used to wrap a corpse to cover the smell of decay. Nicodemus wrapped Jesus' body with myrrh and aloes in a long linen strips. He brought 75 pounds, John 19 tells you. But myrrh was also mixed with wine. And it had an anesthetic effect. It was offered to Jesus by Roman soldiers when he, to deaden his pain when he hung on the cross. Mark chapter 15. 
But this gift, this is an odd gift given to a child, an infant, isn't it? But we understand, we don't know what they understood, but we understand that it foreshadowed the suffering and death that this child would endure. What gift are you given to Christ because of his death? Do you offer him your service out of appreciation for the suffering and the death that he offered particularly, specifically, individually for you? And then Matthew 2.12 tells us, And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. They followed the warning from God instead of the instruction of a king. You see the conflict? Who do you follow? How do you live your life? Do you follow the direction of God? Or do you just go along with this culture? Or whoever's influencing you? You have to choose. You have to choose. Do you know what God wants from you and for you? And will you follow it? Our counselors will be here at the front. You know, if you say, you know, I, gosh, I'm just confused about all this. They'll be here to talk with you, to pray with you. You say, well, I, you know, I've got, a, I've got some illness, emotional, spiritual, physical. They'll anoint you with oil. We've, we've been discovering many, many healings as we've started doing this publicly. And then we've been hearing back the information. Not every person but some surprising healings we've seen. So they'll be here. Also, we have a a meeting back here at the risers to the left side where we vote to approve trustees. I'll pray, and then you'll stack your chairs and go accordingly. Father, help us to give give you the obedience, the worship, and the appreciative service that you deserve. Amen. Thank you for coming. Please stack the chairs.